Let's pray the prayer for illumination that's printed in your liturgies. Lord, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your book. Lord, open my heart that your truth would be my joy and my delight. Lord, open my mind that you would show me the way to live. Guide me by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Our Bible reading this morning is Psalm 131. Psalm 131, which is found on page 969 in your pew Bibles. And we're continuing, for you visitors, our Psalms for the Summertime series, getting towards the end of it. And all the Psalms at the end of this sermon series are Psalms of formation. These are Psalms that when we pray them and when we meditate on them and when we study them, the Holy Spirit uses them to form us. And each of the Psalms that we've studied, have uh, the Spirit uses them to form us in different ways. Different parts of our lives are made godly by each of these Psalms. And that is the same uh, for Psalm 131. Uh, Psalm 131, I don't mind telling you, is one of my absolutely favorite Psalms. And not only that, it's, 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 uh, it's one of my favorite Bible passages. It is a deceptively simple little psalm, okay? Uh, it's really, really short, but it's also really, really deep. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said about it once when he prayed on it. Psalm 131 is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest psalms to learn. You can read it in literally 15 seconds, but it takes you a lifetime for the Spirit to teach you its lessons. So let's read it and let's let the Spirit work on us. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed, quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. So when I read this psalm, I think that this psalm has almost a lullaby feel to it. It feels to me almost like an Old Testament lullaby. It's simple like a lullaby. It has that sort of gentle cadence like a lullaby. And of course, like any good lullaby, it has that image in the, in the center of it of a, of a mother holding a calmed and quiet baby. So th this psalm is almost like a, an Old Testament rockabye baby for me. And it's like that in more ways than one. It's a rockabye baby, right? Um, that's one of the quintessential lullabies. If I were to stop you before the service and say to you, name me a lullaby, uh, good chance uh, many of you would have said rockabye baby. For, for years and years and years, mothers and fathers have taken their babies in their arms and sang them this little song to calm them and bring them to sleep. 
Though why we use this song to soothe our children is a mystery. This is a terrible song. Rockabye Baby is a terrible song. Rockabye Baby on the treetop, when the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bough breaks, the cradle will fall, and down will come baby, baby, cradle and all. This is a terrible song. If our children actually knew what they were singing, we were singing to them, they would never sleep at all. So I don't know where the words of Rockabye Baby came from. Um, but when we sing it to our infants, there's a sort of two things happening at once. On the one hand, the way that the song goes and the way we hold our child is soothing. But the words ha are kind of ominous. There's an edge to the words. And somehow we're reminding ourselves and our children that this world is not simple. That strange things happen in this world that this is a world where boughs break and cradles fall. Psalm 131 is exactly the same dynamic in that respect. Psalm 131 sounds like a lullaby. It has that beautiful image in the center. But if you read closely, if you look beneath the surface, you realize that this calm, quiet baby is a weaned child. She is a weaned child, which means that she is a child who has experienced loss. Specifically, she has experienced the loss of her mother's milk. And this is absolutely the central thing of her life. For a baby, the act of nursing in mother's milk is absolutely central to their life. It's what they think about all the time. It's what they root for. It's what they crave for. It's the one thing that can really calm them, right? When a baby is fussy, you can jingle keys in front of baby. You can go boop, 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 boop. But what's the one thing that will calm baby? Give it to mom so she can nurse. It is the emotional and it is the physical center of baby's life. And when they are weaned, this central pillar, this central thing is taken out of their life. And they don't like it. They don't like it at all. Mama, why are you taking away this milk? Why have you taken away this good thing? This makes no sense to me. So underneath this calm poem, underneath this sweet poem, there's this deep undercurrent of loss. And the psalmist is saying that, yeah, I may be quiet and my soul may be still, but this stillness has come after a great storm. Lord, why did you take this person from my life? How am I supposed to go on without them? Lord, why did you take away my good health? How is this helping anyone? I could serve you. Now all I do is go to doctor's appointment. How is this glorifying you? Lord, my beautiful child is struggling with anxiety. When she was young, she was carefree and beautiful, and now she's anxious all the time. There is deep peace and contentment at the heart of Psalm 131, but this peace and contentment comes after a storm. Seeing that helps us understand how this psalm is meant to form us. What is this psalm forming in us? What is this psalm trying to do to us? What is the Holy Spirit doing to us in this psalm? The psalmist, Holy Spirit, is trying to form us for those moments when we experience deep, profound loss, when we lose the central things in our life, the pillars that formed our future. 
So what does this psalm form us in for those difficult times? Well, I want to get to that. But I want to say for a moment that um, before we think about what the psalmist and what this psalm forms, that when we look at society around us and what is formed around us when it comes to our problems and our troubles and our losses, what society generally trains us to do for everything in our life is to do something. Society's answer for whatever ails you, whatever problem stands in front of you, is to do something, to get better at something, find a technology, find a skill, work harder to overcome your problem, to take care of that issue. Our society in general, when it comes to the things that are in front of us, trains us in what I will call habits of doing, right? We're trained in habits of doing. We meet all our problems with doing. Buy this safety equipment and your kid will be safe. Eat that food and, and you'll be a healthy person. Follow that exercise regimen and, and your body will stay young. Invest according to my pattern, and, and, and you will have money when you retire. Follow these seven habits, and you will be a highly successful person. Do this, do that. Our society trains us for everything in habits of doing. Well, while our society is really good at training us in habits of doing, it's not so good at training us in habits of being. It's excellent in habits of doing. It's terrible in habits of being. What's the difference between those two things? Habits of doing are skills and capacities, excellences, that we learn that increase our own strength. So when you're working on a habit of doing, you're working on increasing something so that the strength for your accomplishments can come within. You're improving your inner capacities. And habits of doing are good things. They're not sinful we all need to chill, teach our children these capacities, these habits of doing. Habits of being are different. When we practice a habit of being, instead of looking into ourselves to increase the capacity, we open ourselves up and we look for a strength that comes from beyond ourselves. Habits of doing increase our own capacity. Habits of being open us to a capacity that comes beyond ourselves. Habits of being include things like prayer, community, insofar as community acknowledges that I can't do it by myself, but I need other people to live my life. Solitude, silence, Sabbath rest. When you practice those kinds of practices, when you practice those practices, you're practicing a habit of being. And you may be doing something when you practice those practices, right? When you pray, you're doing something. But the strength of prayer is not coming from you. It's, it's opening yourselves up to the power of God. It's opening yourselves up and resting your life in Him. It's doing, as Paul says, Resting your being in the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Our society is great at teaching us habits of doing. It's not good at all at teaching us habits of being. And it's, it shows. About a month ago, I read uh, an Atlantic Magazine article that just came out. It was called The Misunderstood Reason Why Millions of Americans Have Stopped Going to Church. I don't know if any of you read it. 
a misunderstood reason why millions of Americans have stopped going to church. It was written by a guy named Jake Medor, and he was getting his information from an upcoming book called The De-Churching of America. And this de-churching book is written by people who work for the Keller Institute and for the Gospel Coalition. And in that book, what they've done is they've taken a lot of data, looked at a lot of demographics, and tried to figure out what is the reason that so many churches are shrinking so rapidly. And um, what they suggest is that a huge part of the issue is that Americans are addicted to work. They're addicted to doing. Here's a quote. Contemporary America is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Everything we are trained to do is about maximizing individual accomplishment and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time and energy for forms of community that don't directly contribute to your professional life or as one ages, to the professional prospects of your children. If it's not directly advancing me or my children, why bother participating? Workism reigns in America, and because of it, community in America, religious community included, is a math problem that doesn't add up. This is a community of being. Right? When you come here, you are steeped in habits of being. I mean, we do things here too, but at its heart, this is a community where you open yourselves up to the living God and let him rule your life. And we don't know how to do that anymore. We're too busy doing, aiming at our achievement. We live in a world that's really good at success and really bad at soul. And this runs all the way down. I was thinking about it this week. Actually, I was thinking about it yesterday. This isn't even in my manuscript. You see the same thing in education, right? In education, there are certain disciplines and certain majors that are more dedicated to being and more, others more dedicated to doing. What are the majors that all the kids are choosing in college these days? It's the practical ones, right? It's nursing and it's, it's accounting. And that's great. We need nurses and accountants. What are the majors that they're abandoning? English, history, humanities, things that think more about being. It's not good. Because as Christians, and particularly as Reformed Christians, we know that our powers of doing are limited. And we're going to come to this place where all our inner resources are not going to be enough for whatever stands in front of us. Psalm 131 was written 3,000 years ago, but it is so timely. It is aimed right at the malaise which is afflicting our society. My heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. Lord, I've been working hard and trying to figure everything else, everything out in my life, and I realize that I can't do it and I can't fix it. It's the end of my doing. But now I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I'm content. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Lord, I'm, 
I'm struggling. I've got all kinds of questions, but I've learned to rest in you. I've calmed and quieted myself. I rest in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even though I don't understand it. That's a deeper kind of faith. It's a kind of faith nourished in a community like this. It's a kind of faith nourished through habits of being. It's a kind of faith that can stand the light of day and endure the dark of night. And you need that because there's going to be moments where all of us end up in the position of the weaned child. There'll be days when all of a sudden the future that you've been working for, the future that all you're doing is aimed at, will vanish. When we were young, we dreamed of meeting someone and getting married. Of course we did. That was the future we imagined. But all of a sudden it's become clear to you that maybe that's not going to happen for you. That God has in mind for you a single future and there's nothing you can do about it. We dreamed about having healthy children, getting married, having a healthy child, watching them grow up, enjoying their company, and all of a sudden we find out that one of our kids has a profound need. And we're going to have to take care of that kid their whole life long. They will always be dependent on us. Nothing you could do about it. We dreamed of all the things that we do in our retirement. We go out, we travel, we'd have all kinds of fun together, but then all of a sudden a medical issue comes in and the only traveling you're going to be doing is to doctor's appointments over and over again. And there's nothing you could do about it. At the beginning when these things happen to us, we are like a child when it's weaned. The pillar has fallen out of our life and we cry and we wonder. But the news of this psalm is that in the middle of all those things, the future that God is laying out for you is his future. It's not outside his plan. and He is working inside that future, inside those problems towards your good, working out everything for his purposes. And he is holding you as tight as a mother holds an infant the whole time. In his book, Standing on the Promises, Lou Smeads tells the story of his mother. His mother uh, was a Dutch immigrant, a Frisian immigrant, actually. <laughs> it's different. Came over in the early 20th century, her and her husband, and they had five kids, okay? They were really young, five kids. They were still in their 20s. And they came to America, and of course, when they came to America, it was an imagined future, right? They came there to have a better life for their kids and for themselves. But then things took a sudden turn. Uh, Lou Smead's dad suddenly dropped dead on a Monday morning. And Mrs. Smead's, speaking almost no English, having almost no working skills, was left on her own with five children at 30 years old. She did what she could. She worked really hard for those kids. But the thing that sustained her in the midst of it, according to Smeads himself, was a habit of being. Every night, Smeads said, after all the kids had been put in bed, she would go into the kitchen and she would kneel on the kitchen floor, put her hands on an old kitchen chair, and she would shout up all her Frisian prayers to God. She would pray earnestly to her God in Frisian. And 
Smeed's Lou could hear every single one of these prayers because he slept right beside the kitchen and it was very thin walls. So he heard everything his mom said. Here's, this, here's the quote. When she prayed, she named each of us, beginning with Jesse, the oldest, running down through Peter and Catherine and Wesley, all spoken in Frisian. And then finally she said my name, Lubbert, at the tail end. It was as if she was holding all of us kids up to God to see what he had left her with. Especially me. My name, I thought, did not drop from her mouth as the last syllable of the series. It sounded more as if she were blowing it out to make sure that it got all the way up to him. And when night after night, I heard my name being blown up to heaven, it gradually dawned on me that I was stuck with God for life. What was happening in that habit of being? Had Mrs. Smeeds learned to calm and quiet her soul like a, a weaned child yet? No, not yet, but she was learning. And God was embracing her. And not just her, also her boy. Lou and her together in mom's prayers or having their souls calmed and quieted like weaned children with a loving parent. And so let me end my sermon with a prompting and a promise. Here's the promise. No matter what your future looks like, uh, no matter whether it looks good or whether you're terrified of your future, let me assure you that your God is holding tightly to you as a mother holds her baby. And here's the prompting. It's the same prompting that ends the psalm. People of LaGrave, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Amen. Lord God, we, we are your children. And when we read a psalm like this, we know that... Um, we're not your adult children. We are your infant children. And we're far more dependent on you than, than we even know. So Lord, we, we open our hearts to you again as we did in this sermon, as we've done in this, this whole service. And we ask that you fill it with your strength, with your truth, with your love. So that when we go out and, and um, exercise our habits of being, we may do so as people who know they are fully embraced. Amen.